Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, 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 hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, in for a treat, I am interviewing Francois Clemens. Now, I think Francois is probably a part of most of our childhoods. Those of you, definitely those of you who live in the United States, at some point watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. At some point, you've known the magic of, of Fred Rogers, whether it was you growing up, and I guess there's shows on now, Daniel Tiger, and you know the, the world that he lives in, part of, uh, part of the show as well, but... Um, you know, there was a, a documentary not too long ago about Fred Rogers. There was a movie made uh, about him, sorta, um, with uh, with Tom Hanks starring Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. Just a, an amazing, amazing person. But that's not who we're talking to. We are speaking with Francois Clemens, who was Officer Clemens in the show. Now he was he starred in the show with. With uh, with Mr. Rogers, uh, made those guest appearances countless times in you know over 25 years of, of being on the show with uh, with Mr. Rogers, but none probably more impactful than the time in the late 60s where he um, shared a swimming pool, a kiddie pool, with Fred Rogers. They soaked their feet in the kiddie pool um, at a time when. You know, racial prejudice was was rampant. There was, you know, people doing terrible things to the city pools just to keep um, African American children out. So Fred Rogers, that symbolic gesture of having Francois Clemens, who is a black man, um, over to soak their feet in the same pool and then um, dry off with the same towel. It was it was a powerful, powerful thing. Francois and I are going to talk about that. We're going to talk about his thoughts on the scene uh, when Fred first wrote it. I think you'll be surprised on what he thought in the beginning. Um, we're going to talk about how he met Fred Rogers. You know, this person from his self-described, you know, ghetto, that's what he described it as, um, in uh, in Ohio, to then meeting Fred Rogers in Pittsburgh, being a classically trained singer, and Fred meeting him. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Fred Rogers and the person that he was. I think uh, it's no secret, just as soon as you start listening to Francois, just how um, much of a difference Mr. Rogers made in, in his life and just how uh, much he cherishes uh, Fred Rogers. Um, we're going to talk a lot about his, his relationship with Fred Rogers. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about some interesting topics about uh, how Francois didn't necessarily share his truth with the world. Maybe, I don't want to say because of Fred Rogers, but because of being on the show and the impact that that's made. Um, I, I think that was a, an interesting topic and one that, that frankly did surprise me. But uh, this was just an amazing conversation with somebody who just has so much energy, so much just vigor. I loved speaking with Francois. I loved listening to him. Uh, you're going to find out very quickly. 
I don't do a lot of talking in this interview. I ask him a few questions, and he is very good at, at uh, taking the lead and, and giving us just a, a lot to, to listen to. Uh, I can guarantee you the things that you're going to be hearing uh, is going to be fascinating, whether you're a fan of, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, whether you've never even heard it. Uh, just a fascinating life that uh, Francois has lived, and he owes a large part of that uh, to Fred Rogers. I think you're really, really going to like this one. I'm already talking a, a good little while with the introduction. It was such a pleasure to speak with him. This is a longer podcast, as you see, uh, because there's nothing I could cut out. My goodness, uh, so much interesting conversation. Um, but let's get right to it. Here is my interview with Francois Clemens. I'm here today with Dr. Francois Clemens. Dr. Clemens, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. It's nice to be with you. Uh, nice to be with you, too. This is a, a tall task because you've done so many amazing things. But if you would, just kind of introduce yourself to the listener. Well, uh, most people will know me from my role as Officer Clemens on uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I did that for about 27 years. I started in 1968. Fred started filming programs for children at WQED in Pittsburgh. And um, sometime around May, I made my first film with him singing American Negro Spirituals. Mm. And I met him and really got to know him because on Good Friday of that year, I did a program at Third Presbyterian Church where he was a member. And at Third Presbyterian Church, I sang on for that Friday, Good Friday, about three o'clock, American Negro Spirituals dealing with the life of Christ. I based this upon the idea of Christmas time when they have what they call lessons and carols, and they'll have a, a lesson and then uh, about the um, birth of the Christ child, the visiting of the angels, all those things. Well, I did the same thing for Easter, where they uh, he never said a mumbling word, and where can I find my Savior, and uh, the angel rolling the stone away. There are a number of Negro spirituals that fit that scenario. And so I decided to to uh, ask the preacher if I could do a special program. And he said, yes, Fred Rogers was the last person to come up to me at the when it was over and say, I was about to leave. And he said, I'd like to talk with you. And my my uh, my first inclination was to say, well, I've been here for two hours or three hours. I'm tired. Mm. But there was such a look in his face. And John Lively, the organist, and Joanne Rogers. I knew Joanne from singing with her in the choir. Mm. So they they implored me in a nice way to take some time and listen and ch chat with Fred. And he expressed such deep uh, admiration for what I had done, how deeply touched he was by me singing those, those Negro spirituals. He had never heard a program like that in his life mm. and that i consider very sad and that's one of the reasons i want to do this special project of 400 years because negro spirituals belong to everybody i mean you have the english tradition of hymns so where you have four-part harmony soprano alto tenor bass all that kind of stuff and then you have the african syncopation the rhythm the intensity the suffering the pain you put those two together, uh, that's how you have the Negro spiritual. So it's not just black people. It's got a very strong contribution from white people. Mm. And then 
people who worked on the Underground Railroad. They weren't just black people. A lot of them were white people. And I think we need to talk about them when we talk about slavery, because those who were against slavery played a very important part. So to tell the whole story is not condemning all white people. Those, uh, those people stand tall in American history because it was very dangerous for some of them to be against slavery, where they lived in parts of Alabama or Virginia or Mississippi. They would, could be killed by their neighbors if they were um, known to be participating in the Underground Railroad. So those are some of the things I'd like to talk about. Plus, uh, when I got with Fred, he invited me over to the, the television station to observe what it's like in studio number one, where he has X the Isles tree is up, and Henrietta right next to him. And then there's Daniel's, Daniel Tiger's uh, clock. And there's Lady Elaine Fairchild's merry-go-round. All of these were strange to me. The King Friday Castle, nothing, nothing to me. I said, so what? And so he pulled out these puppets out of a suitcase. Hmm. And he started using their voice. You know, he spoke to me as he, if he were the king. And then he put that one down. And he spoke to me like Queen Sarah, put that one down. And then he did <laughs> X the Owl. And I was thinking, what? This, there's a madness in this man. Hmm. What on earth is he doing? Well, 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 what a, a, an introduction. I was not raised with men who played with uh, puppets. Aye, aye, aye. Hmm. So it was quite a shock to me that he pulled out these, a grown man, pulled out these puppets and started talking. And it was almost like he was playing. And I thought to myself, well, now what is this all about? Nobody in my family played with puppets that way. And black men did not play with puppets. I mean, I'm a ghetto boy. I came from Youngstown, Ohio, under the uh, under the, the bridge place. There's a ghetto there in the bottom. They called it in the bottom. And I lived there from the time I was five, six years old, until I went away to Oberlin. I was 17, 18 years old. So down there, you know, they have good, they have bad, they have people who are church-going people. But you also have drugs, and you had drug sellers, drug users, you had prostitution, and you had police by, you had abuse by policemen. And so those policemen colored my idea of what policemen did hmm. when they were with black people or they were, if there was a, an incident or a fighting, Black people got shot, and frequently they got killed. So there was a, a distrust mm. for policemen. So when he said he wanted me to be Officer Clemens, I thought, what? What is this? Why? Why? What, uh, who is? I can't be something as mean-spirited as a policeman. And Fred started talking very gently, always he was gentle. And he said, policemen can be very, very helpful too, Francois. If a child gets lost, he looks around, who can help him? A policeman can help him. If a child gets hurt, falls down, who can help him? A policeman. So I would like to think of you as a helper, he said. There are many, many instances and things that will need you to help a young child. 
And I think that that could help to change the whole image, the idea of what what the role of policeman is everywhere. Well, he convinced, there were lots of things, but he convinced me this was a worthy undertaking. And I, I talked to myself, and I said, well, this is a character that I play in studio. And that, in that setting with Fred, and then I go home. And when I go home, I am no longer Officer Clemens. I hung that uniform up like, you see that stuff back there hanging mm -hmm. in the closet? Uh -huh. Well, there are different performances that I did, different places, and it's what I wear. So I hang my Officer Clemens uniform either at the station or the days when I started taking it home. I'd hang it in the closet, and that was the end of it. And it was a long time. Maybe I've been doing the uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for eight or nine years when everybody was calling me Officer Clemens. Mm. And I said, I'm Francois. I'm, I'm a singer. I'm a diva. Oh, but <laughs> we, we watch you on television. We love it when you sing this Mr. Rogers song or you sing that Mr. Rogers song. And I said, well, I'll be darned. You really do. So, I mean, my friends, everybody calls me Officer. Mm. And they have for ever since 1968 <laughs> or 1969. And so I began to respond positively because I'm a, a black trained opera singer and they're not male. There are not very many in this world and very few of us make a living at it. And I barely made a living. But being known as Officer Clemens took me around to Cleveland Orchestra to Pittsburgh Symphony, to Philadelphia Orchestra, to Louisville, Kentucky, to Memphis, to Jackson, all of those orchestras I sang with. And people, I said to myself, well, my goodness, I'm having a career. Not the kind I thought I was going to have, but it is a singing career. So Fred Rogers, in his way, contributed a great deal to the fact that I got other jobs. And sometimes he literally got on the phone and he called a director, a producer, a conductor, and said, you haven't heard Mr. Clemens. He wants to sing for you. Would you be kind enough to listen to him? I know that's a, a lot of what you're asking, but that's who Fred Rogers. He was more than just a face on television, mm. more than just a, a, a guy with puppets talking to children. He was also, you know, the, the scene that we did where our feet are in the water together. Every time where I've ever gone, they asked me about that scene because what happened was the um, the people in the municipal pools around the country did not want black children to swim. And these were babies, four, three years old, five years old, and they were putting chemicals in the water in order to keep the kids out. And th those chemicals were very, very uh, bad on your skin. And... I was furious that people could be so mean to children. And I, I, when I went to see Fred, I was so angry. I said, Fred, you have got to do something about this. And he said, well, friends, I, underst I understand why you're upset. Let me think about it. I thought to myself, you don't need to think about it. Just go get some guns. And we're going to go to those places. And those people who are pouring that, that uh, those chemicals, and potters in those swimming pools, we're just going to shoot a couple of them. <laughs> mm. Oh, that is so funny, because that's the last thing Fred Rogers was thinking of doing. Mm. So to make, I'll try to get finished that. 
it, he said to me, here is the script. He handed me a script. And I said, Fred, there's nothing in here. Uh, we need to talk about how horrible racism is. And we need to talk about what it means with the black women who were raped by their white landowners, slave owners, and then had, had them working in the fields. And we have a terrible history. We need to approach this from a much more aggressive angle. Well, who would have thought? We sit down together. He says, come put, put your feet in the water on a hot day and as a friend. And so I did. Yeah. And the, they showed a specific film of his white feet and my brown black feet in the same. It's a kiddie's pool. So it, we're practically touching each other. That's how little room. And my goodness, I can't tell you what a response. All over the world, not just all over the country, Switzerland, Australia, South Korea, people were writing and saying, oh, Mr. Rogers, we saw that scene with you and Officer Clemens, and it was deeply, deeply touching. I've had many emails on Facebook and um, Instagram and all that stuff saying how powerful it was to them when they were children and they saw that scene. And to this day, that is their favorite scene. But it's a memory. It's a, but it, 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 it's an infection that Fred Rogers put in the hearts of a billion people that racism is wrong. And everybody wants to know who thought this up and why and all this, because it represents Jesus, the Christ man, who washed the feet of his disciples. And when he washed their feet, they didn't want it because he was the leader. They thought doing uh, your feet is uh, what the slaves, the lower class people do. But here Fred Rogers, Jesus Christ, washed the feet of their disciples. And Fred was going through a symbolic effort similar to that with a black man from the ghetto who was poor by his standards, by society's standards. We were people on uh, welfare. And I was gay. And he chose me. That is what that scene meant. And Fred meant it. He, we talked about it. But it also was trying to tell people who said, oh, I love Fred Rogers. I love Fred Rogers. The first edict is to love God. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? He talks about, won't you please, won't you be my neighbor? He says, you are my neighbor, Francois, the one who has no, you don't have the right DNA. You don't have money. You're just barely educated <laughs> and you are poor. And that's who God uses to acknowledge all of humanity. And he chose me because I was black. I'm different. And in our society, all these people consider themselves educated and, oh, I love this and psychological that. And they don't treat black people as equals. And Fred was saying, you must. There was no compromise. I'm sorry I gave you that sermon. But I like it. I Yeah, this is, Dr. Clemens, you're making it extremely easy for me. That one question, you, <laughs> you, uh, you had a lot to say. So I like it. I do want to unpack some of the things that you're, that you're talking about. And I don't want to gloss over you know, your career pre Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and then post too. But I want to kind of hear how you 
found your voice. I know it happened at a young age with your, I believe with your grandpa Saul and and his cane. Let's talk a little bit about how you found your voice in the beginning. Well, the thing was, uh, my grandfather was my babysitter. Hmm. And uh, my mother and a lot of the other women and people around, they went to church at work, church. They went to work in white people's houses, cleaning furniture, serving dinners, cooking, uh, doing the yards, working out in the yard. So my mother was gone to work, and so was my grandmother and other uncles and aunts. But my great-grand, my grandfather, Saul, was considered, he had rheumatiz, so he walked with a cane. Mm -hmm. And he was getting up there in age, so people thought he was losing his mind a little bit. So my grandfather became my prime babysitter, and he used to take me on walks, and we go to a river nearby. We sit on the banks. He would put the the wiggly uh, worms on on a hook. And then he would throw, I hated doing that to the worms, but he did it for me. And then he had a little rod for me to use for fishing. And he had a regular one for an adult. And occasionally I caught a fish or something that was that big. Mm. But it wasn't that. He said to me, if you're a good boy and you sit and you be quiet and don't go to sleep, the the cane is going to talk to to me and it's going to tell stories. What kind of stories, Grandpa? Stories about when you your people came from way across the waters, from a country called Benin. And he said, you were not always a slave, Francois. You come from kings and queens. And you have to remember that. You are special. And the cane may sing a song, sing a song for you. And I said, sing a song? What, what kind of song? My beloved son, I love you. Don't you think of yourself as a slave? You come from kings and queens. And so I did the cane was singing. That was my great, my grandfather, and he was putting something in me about my ancestry, which was was admirable. And I've just improvised for you how he improvised for me. Mm-hmm. It was a long time. I was in my nine or ten years old in Youngstown, Ohio, before I fully realized that this person who was singing was my granddaddy. Yeah. And he was the one telling me I was special and how much he loved me. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's such a deep of yesness of belonging. You know, Fred Rogers said that it was his grandfather who told him that he was special. And that's why he said, he said, you know how you make every day a special day. You know how just by being you. And I love you just the way you are. Mm-hmm. Well. Mr. Rogers carried that all those years, and I, too, carried mine. So we we were anointed together, in my opinion. We had some very, very similar experiences, which involved pagging, passing down the legacy from the grandparents to the parents to the, to the son. And so I'm writing in my next book about the magical qualities, the mystical qualities, that comes 
when you have been anointed and you have experiences that you cannot explain from the physical perspective. Mm. And I've had these experiences. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm anointed. I'm still here. I give the message. I've, I'm 77 years old. I look upon this part of my life as legacy. This is an extension. That's how I feel. And the, the extension is because I have a message. I have something I want to share. And I will tell people, no matter who it is, no matter where I am, that there is something in this world that loves you unconditionally. Mr. Rogers was the one who introduced me to unconditional love. I remember I was in the studio, and I was not filming, so I was trying to be very quiet over to the side so I would not interrupt the goings-on with the camera and the sound and lighting. And during that filming, I I, I caught Fred's eye. He, I, he, he realized I was there in the studio, and it's like he started talking to me. And now I'm not in the scene, but he said, he looked at me and said, you make every day a very special day. You know how? Just by being you. And I love you. He didn't say, I like you. He said, I love you just the way you are. And then he went into tomorrow, tomorrow. We'll start the day tomorrow with a song. Or two, one, two. And then he goes over there, changes his uh, sweater and his just suit jacket. And then he takes off his sneakers, puts uh, the stuff in the in the closet, closes the door, and he turns around. And you make every day a talk tomorrow, a photo with you. And so I wait until Nick, wonderful floor manager, Fred's leaving, Johnny Costa's playing some beautiful jazzy music. And then finally Nick says, cut, that's a good one. We're going to keep it. Well, I was walking towards Fred Rogers. I was so excited. I said, Fred, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I've been talking to you for two years. Mm. But you heard me today. Mm. Something went clap, bloop, bloop, bloop inside of me. I can't, I can't explain it physically. And then I fell into his arms. And he says, yes, I love you, Francois. You are very special. You have to know that. And I couldn't stop bawling like a baby. So that was the first time in my life an adult man said, I love you, that I I knew, you know, as an adult, uh, and made me feel worthy and that something precious was inside of me. And he knew it. He witnessed it. He anointed me. That thing has stayed with me for all the rest of my life. Mm. And when I go around, I talk to people about that unconditional love that Fred Rogers gave me and how important it is. Everybody, everybody, without exception, needs unconditional love. Mm. And there's, there's lots more, but I'm sorry. Am I answering your question? No, that's that's an amazing story for sure. No, I, I, I'm here to, to listen to you, not, not the other way around. Um, I, I kind of want to take us to that that day when he did take you back and and you looked at the um, the set and you looked at the puppets. You talked about how that was very foreign to you. You know, you hadn't seen a grown man do something like that, kind of give up maybe his masculinity a bit to do something like that. I just wondered because be up until that point, at least you know, in looking at your book, I think that you did 
struggle a bit to kind of understand yourself and maybe that that side that wasn't as masculine as some of, of your peers. Do you think seeing him and not uh, you know show his non-masculine side that made you feel a little bit more comfortable being who uh, who you wanted to be? Well, you have to understand that these things happen gradually. Right. So it didn't happen all of a sudden. Right. I knew right from the beginning that he was soft. I could see how he handled himself. Yeah. And even though he went on about his business, he did not uh, really, I don't really consider him feminine. What I do is I call him a soft man. Mm-hmm. And I felt very strongly that he was heterosexual. He had a wife, he has children, all that. But there was a gentleness. Everything he did, everything was he did was he was thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And I had not had that kind of serious treatment in my youth. So for a man to be, uh, he was changing my idea of masculinity Mm -hmm. and manhood. Men could think. Men could hold you. When I cried, he told me he loved me and that I was special. He had the strength. And he also was doing this program. Men could love children. Because where I grew grew up, children were the women's business. Mm-hmm. Women dealt with it right from the, the midwives who, who who had the babies with the ladies and all that. When the ladies had female or women's problems, they would go off them to themselves to work on it or to deal with it. But men did not do that. And he was this man, this man talking on national television and listening to children and saying, you are very special. You're important to me. I like you. I like what you're doing. On and on. I had not seen this uh, process carried on by what I consider a heterosexual macho man. So here we are. And I'm thinking to myself, why can't more men be like this? Why can't they be gentle, kind, loving, understanding? My father beat my mother. So we had incredible brutality in our home and then my mother divorced him she married my stepfather and he beat her also so there was a crazy atmosphere in the house that of this uh terrible terrible uh unwarranted abuse so i was you know a little bit leery of guys who i had grown up with and they married and next thing you heard these stories where they were beating their wives Well, Fred was not, he didn't fit the pattern of what a man did, what a man does. Because some of these men drank, they drank heavily, they were practically drunks, and they gambled. You'd come home uh, from somewhere, and a bunch of guys were sitting around the the corner throwing the the dice together and all that sort of stuff. And somebody else was trying to sell you some marijuana. I got that stuff. I I got that bag. I got a nickel bag. I got a dime bag. I was not remotely interested in that. But that's how I thought most men were. There were a few exceptions, but most men like that. So when Fred Rogers came on the scene, I thought, he's not acting like them. He's not acting like that. So what what is going on? And I began to be drawn to his sensitivity and his gentleness, his kindness. Um, and what I think really solved it for me was one Thanksgiving I was in New York City. I didn't have any place to go, nothing special. I certainly was not going to go back to Youngstown. 
And Fred said, what are you doing for Thanksgiving, Franz? And I said, oh, I'll be there somewhere in New York. You know, I have a bunch of friends there and stuff. He said, why don't you come back and be with us for Thanksgiving? And I thought, be with us? Who? What, what do you mean? I didn't want to impose on his family and their traditions and all that. He said, oh. And I said, Fred, I don't have the money to fly home, <laughs> to fly back to Pittsburgh and stay in a hotel. You know, all this was going through my head. He said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. You just tell uh, Elaine Lynch was a wonderful lady. Tell her what time you'd like to leave, and we'll get the uh, we'll get the um, uh, airlines set your your um, so that you would know what time to leave and what time you would arrive. And somebody will meet you at the airport. Don't worry, someone will meet you. And I said, now where am I going to stay? He said, you'll stay with us. Of course, you'll stay with us. I thought, what do you mean, of course? Well. <laughs> The, I, I got the flight, and I, the whole time I was wondering, well, what am I going to do when I get there? Well, I go. Well, the limousine that picked me up at the airport took me to his home mm -hmm. on Hastings Street, which was in Squirrel Hill, not far from that Tree of Life synagogue that where that guy went in there and was shooting those people. Mm -hmm. That He lived a block or two down the street, and sure enough, it picked me up, took me there, and he said, oh, come on in. We, we, we've been expecting you. We're waiting for you. Uh, come on, let us show you upstairs. And took me up to the third floor. Beautiful home. I mean, it, to me, it was like a palace. And there, was, there were four bedrooms, as I recall. And he said, he opened the door to one of them and said, this is where you're going to stay. So uh, there's a bathroom down the hall. I mean, he went through all of this, and if you need anything, and then you can stay here if you want to rest or whatever. Uh, come on downstairs and join us. We'll be, we'll be waiting for you. We'll be looking for you. Wow. <laughs> I You know, my parents never sent for me to come home for Thanksgiving, let me tell you. And there are many ways you can do that. I know that. But this special way had me with my mouth wide open most of the time in shock. So I go back downstairs, and uh, I don't know whether it was the day before or two days or whatever. but. I realized everything he was doing, he included me in the family. And I wasn't expecting that. I thought they would just be gracious and be uh, kind. But he he was more than he was inclusive. And his two boys, Johnny and Jamie, became brothers to me. Little brothers, because I'm older than them. But they never expressed an, an iota of jealousy or uh, any kind of possessiveness that they didn't want to share their daddy. And I eventually understood that he had taken, he became my surrogate father. So they and I, I felt as though we had this brother's, brother's relationship because I went there enough and they came to the station and I saw them and like that. And Joanne became my surrogate mother. And I mean, she never batted an eye. She never said, oh, but this, we can't do this. We can't do that. Whatever they were doing, special holidays, Easter and stuff, they said, are you coming home? And that was, a, say to me, are you coming home? <laughs> I, I hope I'm, I'm really sharing with you the shock that Fred, this wonderful star, this man who was on television, who was a, he was a millionaire, very intelligent, well-educated, said, are you coming home? And I, I often felt unworthy. But what I began to understand is he was like a, a mentor, and I was an apprentice. And this is his way 
of mentoring me and being around him in the atmosphere is part of the teaching. It's hard to explain to people what, what is a mentor because a mentor doesn't just teach you things. You absorb the atmosphere and some of the habits and then ways of thinking and ideas. You entertain ideas that maybe you never had before, never would. And I began to realize that I was being mentored by this great man. And he has stayed with me, lo, all these years. I remember him. I think of him. I love him. He helped me to write the book, Officer Clemens. I wrote that book over a long period of time because it was like a journal that I kept as I traveled around America and to England and to France, to Germany, Austria, all that. I would keep a notebook, a date book, and I would write the little things about what was around me or what I remembered. And then when I got back to New York after a period of time, I said, I need to put these thoughts into a, a form that uh, I could read and appreciate, and maybe one day I would get them published. Well, I started writing my ideas down. I had a friend who lived very close by, and she said I, sh I would pay her, but she would type everything into uh, onto sheets of paper. And I must have had 6,000 pages when I, finally, when I finally said, oh, okay, you know, you need to make a book. This is too much. And a lot of it was pure junk, but it was just observations of what I was doing as I traveled. And uh, I, I got the job here at Middlebury College back in uh, 1996, 97, 97 something. And I looked around and it seems like everybody on the faculty was publishing. You know that, that phrase, you publish or you perish, that you must publish if you become a part of academia. So I thought, well, I'll make my journal that I've been writing into a book. And everybody encouraged me. I had lots and lots of help with the computer, with storage, with how to do Microsoft Word and that kind of stuff because I, I started getting serious about it. And uh, to make a long story short, I sent it out to a number of people. They said, good God, man, you got too much stuff here. Nobody's going to publish all of that. <laughs> and I said, and they said, you got to cut it down. So originally I went ahead and I tried to do some self uh uh, um, editing, but I, I liked what I had written, so I saved everything, and then I had about 600 or so pages, and a person said to me, you need to go see a book doctor. That book doctor will tell you what's important, what's not important, and will also help you with chronology. Sometimes you want something to be earlier or later, depending on how the impact of telling the story. So, Dr. Clemens went to see a book doctor, and that wonderful man, Alsom, Peter Alsom, started to work, and he was very, very thorough. That's one of the things I, I love about this man. And he said, you know, we're going to get married. And I thought, what? He said, because I want you to tell me everything. I want some details. I want to know everything that you're thinking and everything you're writing. And he said, you have my solemn promise that I will not divulge anything that uh, which you don't want me to say or tell people about. I've never heard a word about all this stuff I discussed. It was like being with a psychiatrist. You marry a psychiatrist. I talked to him. I flew down and took drove down to New York from, from Vermont, and we went through that whole process. 
it was very, very painstakingly detailed. So I took that and I, I wrote to a number of people, their books on how to get published. And I found a couple of publishers, editors, and I, I mailed the copies to them or I, I sent them online. And eventually I heard from this one woman uh, and she's Elizabeth Copps, who is an outstanding lady in my life because she read through a lot of it and she said, I think it's just about ready, Francois. Let's send it out and see how some of the people respond. And no, there's never a simple direct line because she came back to me and said, you know, you've got four chapters here where you talk about your relationship with Fred Rogers. I think you need to write more. of. of let's set this aside because I didn't get anybody accepting it. But maybe they'll like if you write about Fred Rogers. So... I sat down and I enlarged those chapters to a book of 300 pages, showed it to Elizabeth. She said, okay, let's send that out. We sent it out and eight or nine, <clears throat> 10 people, a number of them said to Elizabeth, can you put that book, I called it Diva Man, My Life in Song, and the one to Mr. Rogers, my special friend, can you make that into one book? <laughs> I said, do you know how much time I have spent doing this? and try, trying to get all this stuff together. But then I also sat there and said, everybody's publishing, so there's a lot of motivation. It's, it's going on around me all the time. So I said, take the time, you have it. And so Elizabeth said, you write, I'll edit. Send me three pages, send me 10 pages, send me one page, send me 18 pages, whatever you write. And so I began to weave the stories together. <clears throat> and I sent them to Elizabeth. And eventually she said, okay, we've got enough. Let's see. So she sent it out. And lo and behold, we got nine offers. I never will forget that number. There will be more later on. But that original bunch, nine. I said, Elizabeth, nine? She said, yes. Yeah, and you can pick which one you want. <laughs> mm. uh, so I, uh, she chose Catapult. I, mm. I definitely... Uh, deferred to her opinion on who to uh, to publish it because I did not know like she knew which ones would treat me well, which would get a better money deal or a better writing deal or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy Catapult uh, accepted it, made an offer that was absolutely appropriate. I'm very, very, very happy to be working with them. And uh, so the rest is history. After that, I went through some things with them, and I went down to New York to meet them. And the first thing, uh, uh, Mary, um, Mensa Demary is the editor there. So when I walked in the door, and they were all, a bunch of them were sitting around waiting to meet me. We we're getting ready to publish the book, and they said, you do not have to write this book over. Hmm. And only later did I really understand the power and the significance, because these publishers take a person's guts. They take the special book and they sometimes take it out, throw it away, and they give you something that's terrible or that's not worthy of what you're trying to say because they're thinking of what is merchandisable, what is saleable, what will the public buy. Maybe they don't want the story this way or they don't want to know that. So they wind up cutting and carrying on and the person reads his book and says, well, this is not what I wrote about. This is not what I meant. Uh, he said, you are not going to have that problem. 
because we think your book is special. Mm. Well, that was a, an incredible gift to me, but that was the process of how I got the book finally published through Catapult. And when you know it, COVID, COVID-19 hit. And I couldn't do any uh, personal live appearances. I did maybe six or seven of them before every contract I had. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, they all canceled. And they said, nobody's traveling. No one's going to listen to people um, talking about a book when they're trying to figure out what they're, what's happening in their lives. Well, as life would have it, I discovered Zoom or Zoom discovered me, mm. and many, 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 many people <laughs> have written and said, "Can you please do a Zoom with us?" And uh, I, I mean, I've done so many, I forget about them after <laughs> so many. Damn. I love them while I'm doing them, but I often, you know, I need someone to remind me of uh, my schedule. It's it seems to be a little complicated to me. I hear you. I like it. And I, yeah, I mean, you, you packed a lot into that answer too. And I want to just kind of, I guess I want to ask you about something that you talked about a little bit earlier. I do have your book. It's right here. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, there you go. So obviously this was, this was not the original time that, that you, uh, you know, you shared that type of scene. You already talked about that particular scene. Talked about how everyone asked you about that. Of course, I'm going to ask you a little bit about it too. Um, you, you know, you already talked about how important it was and how significant it was with the time that was, was currently happening and why, you know, it was so important to not only just share that pool, but also, you know, he shared that his towel too. So just, it was a significant thing. I know that you already talked about earlier how, you know, you wanted just, you came in kind of guns blazing, almost literally, um, about wanting to, to have something done. So when he did what he did and you guys filmed that scene, did you at all know the impact that it would make? Were you at all happy with it? Did you think this is silly? This is not at all what I hoped for. Or did you realize at that time exactly what he had done? Oh, you're asking me for the truth. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was weak. Oh. I thought the scene, well, like Fred, was, was too gentle. Hmm. That's why I wanted to go with the blazing guns. Yeah. It was subtle. So I honestly didn't think people would get it. They wouldn't get the fire that was shut up in my bones. I was so pissed. And he was writing this very patient, this gentle exchange among friends. And it has had a profound effect. I learned, you know, as I say, I gradually uh, accepted what he was trying to say and how he knew what was the best way for him. I um, I talked with Fred a lot. We used to walk around the studio and we would talk about the Bible. We would talk about Jesus, the New Testament, the disciples, uh, the, the uh, Old Testament. He loved to discuss those biblical stories. And I, having grown up in the Baptist church, I have studied intensely the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for that, I, have, I will forever be grateful because that was maybe the best thing that came out of that church experience. Mm -hmm. But so I was able to discuss with him. I spent, I spent a lot of time discussing the Bible. Fred was going to the seminary there at uh, Pittsburgh Seminary. 
and uh, he's getting his degree, master's in um, uh, divinity. So he was writing papers and reading articles, and I was the beneficiary because he discussed all of it, or a lot of it. Uh, when I would go to Pittsburgh, he said, oh, I'm so glad you came. I'm writing about Lazarus, risen from the dead. Or I've just been reading about the prodigal son. What, what, what was he doing? Why did he come home? Or Ruth and Naomi, there were certain stories. And we, as I was in the studio filming with him, my mentor was teaching me in a way about how to interpret the Bible, what to look for. And that's why I said to you, the first thing he came to me, he said, you must love your neighbor as yourself, friends. He said, I, you know, I sing that song. Won't, won't you please, won't you please, please won't you be my neighbor. So what does that mean when you hear me sing it? What does be my neighbor mean? And of course, we go back to the, the story of the Good Samaritan who saw the guy on the side of the road. It took him up cleaned his wounds, took him to the inn, paid for him and said, when I come back, if I owe you money or he owes you money, I will pay you that. Take care of him. Fred said, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor on the side of the road. And that's your neighbor is the Samaritan. And I, I want to kind of talk about you know some of those other discussions. This is the last you know thing I want to ask you specifically about your time on the show. Uh, but obviously, when it comes to somebody like this, definitely somebody who is on such a, a large pedestal, um, everyone's always trying to, you know, knock people down just a little bit. And there always has been for a long time talk about, yeah, we talk, you know, Fred did such a great job with talking about, you know, racial issues and all kinds of things. But he was never was comfortable with allowing you to talk about, you know, being gay and, and the issue of homosexuality. Um, people, you know, of course, people have said that he was against it. People have said they just didn't want it on. I've heard you talk about it before, but I want you kind of just to, to share what you're, what you're comfortable sharing about that topic. Well, I'm, I'm comfortable sharing all of it because it was a huge shock to me to realize that I was gay. It did not come easy. And in my family, it was not acceptable. Uh, this, we were primitive Baptists, went to church almost every day. And there was no such thing as a room for a sissy or for a gay man. So um, I was very skeptical, but Fred called me into the office and said, someone told him that I had been at this club in Pittsburgh called the Playpen. And all I was doing was dancing, to be quite honest. And I had, had a wonderful time. And I really felt betrayed that someone would go behind my back and say something because what it implied, they were there also. But as he explained to me, I was on screen and they were not. And so I always had a vague idea who it might have been, but he would not tell me. He told me, I'll never tell you because that's not what's important. What he was trying to share with me is people like Johnson & Johnson, baby products, and Sears, Sears Roebuck and Sears in those days. Those Heinz 57, those companies would not support a program that flaunted my sexuality on screen, that I was gay and I was uh, involved with other men in a way that they, they considered unchristian. And we had, so we had some serious conversations because Jesus the Christ never mentions homosexuality at all. 
He never talks about it. And so Fred and I talked about that. And what he said to me was, this is my dream. I have always wanted to have a program where I could teach children about, about their emotions, about their growth, about their, their questions. And he said, Franz, I would be uh, uh, the, such a distraction if I ta talked about your being gay or talked on the program. And then he felt that those companies would withdraw. And he said, um, if, I, if I allow that to happen with you, then this will, uh, I will have lost the opportunity. So it was definitely a case of him, me, not wanting to hurt him. The man who had done so much for me and who had shown me such deep love, which I very much needed, I didn't want to do something to hurt or destroy his dream. And I thought it is better for me to be quiet. It's maybe, maybe it's even easier for me to be quiet. So I put my, as I call it, my cross on my shoulders, and I started marching straight ahead. I decided I would live in the closet. And it has been a tremendous sacrifice. I have paid my dues. I was afraid of having photographs taken with friends. I, when I was doing interviews, if someone even remotely mentioned anything about being gay, I made them promise me that they would not out me in their newspapers. Uh, there were three specific guys over the years who said to me, I know you're gay. And so I listened to what they had to say. And I said, well, then, would you please keep it to yourself or don't talk about it? And they said, yes, we will not out you. So it was very difficult because I, there were times when I wanted to be intimate, but I was afraid. And I was afraid that someone might take pictures or might tell somebody uh, a, a true story of something that I had done. So I decided not to do anything. And there were times when I'm not proud, but I pushed some people away. I was cool. I was, uh, I rejected some serious uh, care, which could have turned into love, turned into an affair, and I would have lived a very, very different life. But I just did not feel that I could survive the rejection of being not being on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. It was also tied in with the fact that I'm black. There were there was no other black personality or character or actor on children's television at that time. Later on, they had Sesame Street, and then they had Bill Bill Cosby on uh, Electric Company. But they, they were subsequent programs. And in my program with, with Fred Rogers, I felt a deep obligation for black children to have a positive role model on television. And I did three or four tours around America specifically urging black people to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And those tours were terribly successful. I mean, overwhelming. There was so much mail. There was such a response. Everywhere I went, I sang in Memphis. I sang in Nashville. I sang in Jackson, Mississippi, Alabama. I went back to Birmingham, Montgomery, all over the South. And then I went out West. I was way on the road once for like nine months talking to black people in black churches and black civic organizations, black fraternities, black sororities about watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. 
and everywhere I went, I was accepted bountifully, wonderfully. They were wonderful. And they sent mail to Pittsburgh to Mr. Rogers and said, Officer Clemens was here. This is what we did. This is what we sang. It was wonderful. Over and over and over and over. And we began to realize that the program was being watched by many, many black people in the South, in the Midwest, and in uh, the West, far West. So I wanted to be able to serve in this way. And I feel that I was. How, how do I say thank you? And I'll tell you a story. I think I mentioned it in the book. After I did those tours, I came back to Manhattan where I lived. And I had a, what I consider a lot of money. <laughs> and <clears throat> as I was home uh, paying bills, when you're away a long time, I talked to the landlord, the television people, the electric people, the light, all those people. I had to contact and let them know I'm away. I'll be back and I will pay those bills. And I paid, you know, the landlord and I paid the television, cable people and on and on. And when I got finished, I, I thought I was sitting at my desk and I thought, you know, this man has been so kind to me. And I love that he gave me the he trust, the trust he placed in me to go out on on tour and to sing and talk. And I remember writing him out a check for five hundred dollars. And to me, that was tithing. I was tithing. I made quite a bit more than that on that trip. I, and I wrote a little note. Dear Fred, I admire, you know, very, very much what you're doing. I'm so grateful for an opportunity to really give you a gift of me going out and traveling. And then I'm giving you this money because I remember saying this. I believe in what you're doing. I think it's that significant. So I want to make at his company was called Family uh, FCI, Family Company or Family Corporation, something. But it was FCI. So I made the check out to FCI, put it in the mail, put it in an envelope, sealed it. When I went outside, I put it in the mailbox. Well, about a month or so later, I got a phone call from Fred. And he was speechless. He, he was not coherent. And so I listened because that was not like him. Well, what's the matter? And he said, friends, I got the letter from you. And I thought, what letter? <laughs> you know, time had passed. What are you talking about? And he said, the letter with the check. Oh, that letter. And I said to him, I, I did that, Fred, because I believe in what you're doing. And I, want, I tithe to the church. So I wanted that my tithe to part of it to go to you. And he said, let me tell you something. In all the years that I've been involved in children's education and research, he went to Canada for a couple of years and he came back and he started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He said, nobody ever who worked for me ever gave me a dime. You are the first one. Right now, you're the only one. And he said that to me. It means so much to me. I talked to Joanne about it. He said, we are not going to catch that. We are going to save it. We want to remember your kindness and your love, your loyalty, and how you have served me. So I'm, I'm deeply grateful. He, I know by that time he was sobbing. And Joanne got on the phone for a minute and said to me that oh, he, he's telling the truth, Francois. Nobody, none of them ever gave him a check. And you did. 
that's that's a powerful thing. And I I just I, I guess I'm a little because you you've talked about this in other interviews, and I've always thought that maybe I've kind of understood things incorrectly. Is, is so? Are you saying? I guess that you've never been able to truly live, you know, your your truth because you've, I guess you've stayed closeted. Because I just can't imagine that would have been would have been his hope. Is that is that what you're tell is that what you're saying? Uh, I think that they wanted me to live cl closeted or on the down low, and that's why I say I pushed some people away. I could not come out if there was a way that I could have a relationship with the same sex. And it would not be in the newspapers. That would be the most ideal thing. But everything I did, people, photographers, people were around. They were taking pictures. And I was in every newspaper in America. It was so interesting how popular I was. But I was not a, a, a pop star. You know, I was not a Michael Jackson or that kind of attention. But everywhere I went, oh, we know who you are. Oh, we've seen you on Mr. Rogers. Uh, I got a job, several jobs, more than a several, a whole lot of jobs. I would write to people and say, I'm Officer Clemens from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And they would say, oh, there were more said yes than said no. And so Fred was asking me to take take this down a dynamic, keep it gentle, keep it quiet. And I, I didn't know how else to do it because I'm an extrovert and I loved going out to the clubs. I loved being in the gay clubs and the straight clubs too, but there was so much dancing. And in the village, if, if, if the club was dark and all that, I felt safe. I could go in, I could dance, I could have a drink, uh, I could relax, but then I went home by myself. Mm -hmm. I always did. And yes, it was a great sacrifice, but I did it. And I would do it again. That's a powerful, powerful thing for sure. I, uh, I, I, the last thing I want to ask you with Fred Rogers, then I want you to get to, you know, what, what you're up to now is just obviously the renewed interest when it comes to the documentary a few years ago, the feature film. What did you think when all of this kind of just popped back up and, and everyone was, was in, more interested in his work all over again? Well, the documentary, I, I liked very much. Won't you be my neighbor? Hmm. The director and uh, the other people, I didn't work very much. You know, he was out in California. He said, we're going to film this documentary. Can you come out here to California and film? And I was ill at the time. And I said, oh, my God, I just had a stroke. I can't do anything. And uh, he said, well, oh, we're very sorry. We'll be back in touch with you. Can we call you again? I said, yes, of course. So maybe a month or two later, they called me again and um, said, can you come to Pittsburgh? We're going to be filming. And I said, oh, Lord. I asked my doctor, and he said, it is not safe for you to fly anywhere. You still Tell them you're still under a doctor's care. Well, I didn't want to tell them, but I did. And I have to tell you, the wonderful director, I talked to him, and I talked to a couple of his producers, and they said, "You can't. can you get someone to drive you down here to New York? We're going to be filming in the city for a while and doing some other work. And I said, okay, I'll talk to my doctor. And he said, no. You must be here. But he said, you can't go anywhere for another six months or something like that because your health is so fragile. <clears throat> and I was going to the doctor at least once a week. And for a short time, I was on dialysis. So my doctor said, no, no, no. So I called him back and I said, 
I am so sorry to have to tell you this, but I won't be able to be a part of your project because I couldn't go to Hollywood, I couldn't go to Pittsburgh, and now I cannot go to New York. And this man surprised me and said, can we come to Vermont? <laughs> and I sat there and I said, what? You would come up here? He said, yes, I will find out the dates and we'll coordinate them with you and we will <clears throat> send a truck with some lights and sounding equipment and cameras and all that, and we're going to come to Vermont. Mm. And they did. Mm. They we, we figured out the schedule and everything. Oh, and I mean, it was wonderful. So I was um, here at home. I have a front porch. The truck drives up, and my goodness, they start unpacking all that gear, you know, that like that microphone you have in front of you. They had three or four mics. They were uh, holding them from the uh, upper parts and the, and the lower ones because the lighting had to be right. And they changed all my furniture. They moved all the furniture. I told them, go right ahead. I slept until I had to get up to film. And mm. uh, I filmed like I'm working with you for an hour or two or so. And then I said, I'm exhausted. I can't go on. And they said, oh, what's the matter? I said, I just need to sleep on my brain couldn't take the intensity for long. They said, well, go to sleep and sleep as long as you like. We will wait. Yeah. And so for three hours, I went back, if not three or four, I, I, they went to lunch. They did whatever else they had to do with other people and phone calls. And when I woke up, I got dressed again. I said, okay, I'm ready to go. And yeah. so we filmed for another couple of hours. And they said, you know, we have this stuff down in your basement and everything. And we, we were looking around. We would love to do a little. I said, I can't do anymore. He said, can we come tomorrow? And I said, okay, let me go to sleep. And I swear, those guys, it was like having relatives. I went in the bedroom. I went to sleep. And I said to them, lock the door whenever you leave because I won't be awake. So I went to bed. I got up early the next morning. I swear, those guys were here like at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's early to me. So... I get up, I get have some coffee, get dressed, and sure enough, we go down to the basement. They had set up the lights and stuff, and they were already prepared. And I just sat in place, and we did the last part. Mm. And I have nothing but good things to say about Won't You Be My Neighbor. Mm. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> the people who did It's a Beautiful Day in This Neighborhood, yeah. I think that was the name of the second movie with Tom Hanks. It was a Hollywood movie. I want to say terrible things, but I don't, that would not be the whole truth. The truth is they didn't ask me to be in it. As a matter of fact, they made the wife into a black person, I guess. But otherwise, it would have been all white people. And that was not Fred Rogers. That's the first thing. The second thing is there was not, not a role for Lady Aberlin, Mr. McFeely, or me, or, or Joe Negri. We were all there. How do you make a picture about Fred Rogers? And don't include Lady Ablin or Mr. McFeely or uh, Handyman Negri or Joe or, or Officer Clemens. So I look at this movie and say, who are they talking about? What are they talking about? They're not talking about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was a Hollywood B movie. B, not A. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I've, I've watched it two or three times. They, they don't capture the spirit of Fred Rogers. They get this gloss, places that he went, little things that he said. They began to get it at the end of the movie. 
that if by that time you began to realize that they knew who this man was. The movie was not about Fred Rogers. It was about this man who was a, working for Esquire magazine and the situation that he was going through that he got to meet Fred Rogers and the influence Fred had on his life. Mm. It just wasn't that interesting. It wasn't. Well, I'm glad the the documentary was was good because I would hate for them both to have not captured any of the essence of it. But with care was not good. It was magnificent. <laughs> oh, there we go. Good. It really good. was, and you know why? Because they focused on Fred Rogers mm. and they focused on his legacy and the people around him. They had something to say about Fred. That's the movie about Fred. This other about this uh, Esquire gentleman is fine for that, but that's not Fred Rogers. Yeah. No. I, I hear you. I, I understand that. I'm glad that we got some some insight from you about both of them. I want to just open it up. I don't even feel like I have to ask you a question. I've been talking to you long enough. Tell me what you've got going on. Tell me this new project. Talk about your Kickstarter. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. I get to talk about my Kickstarter. Yeah, I uh, my entire career from 1968 to now, I never made a solo recording. I did Porgy and Bess, 1975 or 1974. We got a Grammy, so I have one Grammy award for the role of sport in life. But it went to the whole company: the Cleveland Orchestra, the conductor, the other singers, Bess, Porgy, and all of that. Mariah, Serena, it, that was a stellar crew that I got to work with. So the Grammy was for everybody. And then I did shows with Fred Rogers that were up for Emmys or uh, other uh, wonderful uh, accolades, which the show deserved. But all my life, I kept wanting to sing a solo album where I would sing uh, American Negro Spirituals. That became my specialty. And so I decided I would try to raise a substantial sum of money and uh, have people contribute to this album. I'm working with a wonderful um, Perry Evitt. He's an engineer, a sound director, and I'm working with a pianist, uh, uh, Ronnie Romano. He is so gifted. So I've had some private sessions that have been just off the charts. But now I, I need to finish this up. We need to record a few more things, and I need to get, um, get it edit it digitally and all that, and then post it and stuff. I Let me tell you, I listened to several of the songs from this potential album. I have never heard such tender singing in my whole life. I, I often think, oh, what kind of gifts do we have? I don't have the loudest voice. I don't have the highest voice. I don't have the lowest voice. And I, on and on but I am able to communicate a level of tenderness that I've never heard in any other artist. We all have something as a special gift that we give. Mm -hmm. And I understand the pain and the suffering of slavery. And nobody has sung it better than I do. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Now, you have some people who sing it well, and they sing, oh, just so gloriously. But that's not what you're going to remember about my recording. I like it. I like it. And I want you to tell us how people can connect with you after today, whether it's how they can pick up this book, whether they, where they can pick up your next book, 
Where's your best connection <laughs> points? Well, I'm that Kickstarter to before I do the next book, but I'm writing and I'll talk about it in a minute. But the uh, to, to get in touch with me, I, I'm at uh, francoisclemens.net. So I, I always write www.francoisclemens.net. Gotcha. That's what I, francoisclemens.net. So that's one way to get in touch with me. And there's a page about the book. There will be a page soon enough about um, the Kickstarter, but it's on Facebook and Instagram. It's posted all over my webpage. All you got to do is go and look on for Diva Man or Diva Man Francois or something, and they'll find me on, on Facebook. And there, there should be a link to get uh, to the Kickstarter, which is 400 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm dealing about the 400 years of slavery. So that's what that name came from. And when the, when the uh, person uh, suggested that name, it, it hit me very solid. I said, that's what I'm trying to say, 400 years. That's one project. The other project, which is my next book, is about a, a gentleman who lived in Africa in a, just a, in a village who loves his family. He's basically a farmer, and he um, has a wife, and he has children and all that. And he lives a, a good life. He goes up the mountain and discovers that there is a holiness in that mountain that gives him the gift of healing with his hands. So when he comes down from the mountain, he he begins to take care of babies and various other people. He heals. All he does is lay his hand and he sends prayers from God. Well, after 50 years or whatever of doing this, everybody knows who he is and what he is and stuff. But one day, his grandson, his favorite little grandson, is kidnapped. Now, you and I know history enough to know he was kidnapped by a slave trader who took him to a fort uh, somewhere around uh, Liberia and all, and then put him on a boat in the basement, bottom of that boat, the belly of the boat, and took him to America, and his grandfather never saw him again. So I try to share with people not only the pain of the grandfather losing his grandson, but the pain of the boy who is so confounded what on earth is happening to me? There's no, there was no definition. There was no experience in his life that prepared him to be uh, kidnapped and then to be put in the bottom of the belly of the boat and it was just smelly and it's unsanitary. Strange people, there are others around him who do not speak his language. It is agonizing. So this holy man, Drek is his name. Drek goes back to the mountain and says, uh, you gave me this gift. Now, somebody has got to tell me where is my child. And as he goes up the mountain, he levitates. He's transfigured and he levitates. There's a cloud. It, the, the mountain is high enough that the top of the mountain is above the clouds. When he gets up there and he's levitating, he recognizes the trees, the shrub the animals, the river. He's a part of everything. Everything is a part of him. And this is his deepest experience of God, of holiness, of divinity. Well, that energy that's divine informs him, I have taken your son, your grandson, excuse me, to another world because 
I, those people must learn who I am. And they're going to learn through him. And he said, as a reward to you, I'm going to send you to this new world. And you will become a very important part of his life. So you will know what happened to your grandson. That's powerful. And you said that it's, uh, you're, you're not exactly, obviously we talked earlier about how books take time and then you've got to, you've got to get it published, but that's something, when should we be looking at that in a couple, couple years? Where are we looking at? Uh, oh, let's say a year. Less than a year. Well, it's something to no, definitely no, be looking at. Say a year. Oh, let's <laughs> let's say a year. I guess. <laughs> I, you know, there's so many steps that you have to go through. I finally uh, sent a substantial part of it to my uh, editor, and she hasn't gotten back to me. Elizabeth, yeah. you know, the cops, yeah, lady cops. That's what I call her, lady cops. Lady I cops. adore this woman. So I finally sent her uh, a, a good part of the manuscript so that she may offer directions or suggestions, whatever she feels as the editor, I need to hear about. I, I want people to, to check out that book when it comes out. Let's say a year from now, I want people to check out the book that, uh, that already is out. Go on that website, what's FrancoisClemens.net, wherever, wherever from that link, uh, pick it up there. You're talking about Lady Cops. As we kind of close this out, I would have never, never asked you to do this, but Lady Cops is the one that told me that I should. So as we close out, do you want to give us just a, a few bars of song? <laughs> she told on me. She did. Uh, yes, I don't uh, have to be coaxed to sing. <laughs> I woke up singing. I came into the world singing from my mother's womb. This little light of mine I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, everywhere I go. Oh. I'm gonna let it shine. Well, everywhere I go, I'm gonna let it shine. Everywhere I go, Lord, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Th and thank you for your understanding. Absolutely. So that was Dr. Francois Clemens. What an amazing guy. Just, I, I was blown away by his stories, blown away by his passion for song, just the stories that he had about Fred Rogers. What an awesome opportunity that I had to speak with Francois. What an awesome opportunity that Dr. Clemens decided to share with us. Do go check him out. If you're interested in hearing more about his life, interested to hear more about his time uh, with Mr. Rogers, I do urge you to go check out his book. The book is called Officer Clemens. 
I do think that you're really going to enjoy that. Pick that up on Amazon. Go to FrancoisClemens.net. Pick it up there. It'll be in the show notes. Go check out his uh, Kickstarter for um, the album that he's really, excuse me, that he's releasing. Um, soon there'll be a, a second book that he talked about. Make sure you support him there too. I, I was just, I was blown away today, and I really, really appreciate his time. Hope you enjoyed it as well. So if you enjoyed today, absolutely, if you haven't done so yet, go follow us on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast, Facebook, Not Enough Jackson Huff, JacksonHuff.com. Go on Apple, go on Spotify, leave those five stars. Get on Apple if you use that. Write a written review. Always appreciate that. But appreciate you being here. Appreciate Dr. Clemens' time. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.